Sentire Media. Ciao! The episode you are listening to is a re-release due to technical issues, in the sense that technically I'm a bit of an idiot. Indeed, for episode 129, I accidentally uploaded episode 128. Now, some of you have managed to sort it out and listen to the actual episode 129. However, if you haven't had the chance to listen, here is the correct episode 129. Apologies. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 129, Catherine of Siena, Medieval UN Ambassador. In the last episode, we saw the early life of Catherine of Siena and how she had started to make a name for herself with a life of abnegation and sacrifice, and most of all, her mystical and rather crude visions of Jesus and demons and the saints. In the late 1360s and the early 1370s, her fame grew beyond the town of Siena, beyond wider Tuscany, and beyond the borders of Italy. On the 30th of December, 1370, Pope Gregory XI was elected in Avignon. Just three years later, he already saw Catherine of Siena as his go-between with the Tuscan cities. At the same time, the cities themselves and the political figures of prominence in the period would ask Catherine to intervene in various questions, both between different cities or duchies and within the factions themselves. This she dutifully did in the name of peace, which she hoped would come to what was perceived as a particularly violent period in Italian history. Despite the Pope's reliance on her, he also felt an obligation to bow to increasing pressure and to put Catherine to the test. The head of the spiritual Christian world could not just take a young woman on her word. Catherine was called to trial in Florence and quickly managed also to convince her jurors. Since we are talking about the 14th century and Catherine was a woman, she was assigned a confessor that could keep an eye on her, Raymond of Capua. Ironically, he would become her greatest supporter and in the end her biographer, and she would refer to him both as my father and my son. The Pope also let it be known that he intended to come back to Rome. This was a big issue, particularly for the Italians who saw the Avignon papacy as a real low point for the church. Catherine did not give Gregory a moment's peace on the topic and sent him a barrage of increasingly aggressive letters in which she called into question his sanctity, his masculinity and his courage, basically calling him a giant wimp and wondering if she would perhaps have to report him to Christ himself with whom she was in direct contact. She first referred to his choice of name, Gregory, 
reminding him that there had been a Gregory the Great, a saint, and that he, the new Pope Gregory XI, would have to try and live up to that name in a time when there were no longer any saints. When he chose his cardinals and bishops, she expressed her doubts about his choices, wondering if perhaps he had not planted stinking flowers in the garden that was the church. She referred to his fear of coming back to Italy due to the danger he potentially faced, comparing him to an infant who is fooled by the mother who spreads something bitter on her nipples when trying to wean the babe. She said, Come, come, come! Do not wait for time, for time will not wait for you. If I were you, I would be in fear that divine judgment should fall upon me. When the Pope still hesitated, she became increasingly aggressive. I would not want to appeal to Christ on the cross about you, for there is no other I could appeal to, for there is no other greater on earth. She then went on to tell him, not to be surprised if he brought the wrath of God onto the world. You may be wondering what the Pope himself thought of all of this verbal abuse in open public letters. Was perhaps one of the most powerful men in Christendom going to sit down and take this from a young woman? Well, the short answer is, yes, he was. By this point, Catherine was recognised all over as someone who spoke directly to God, as God's voice on the earth, and aside from her detractors, she was generally accepted by all, woman or no woman. Meanwhile, Catherine continued with her daily activity, and in 1374 and 1375, when a new wave of plague hit, she was on the front lines helping the sick. She was also asked to travel, for example, when she was asked to go to Pisa to help those that could not make their way to Siena. There was no cause she would refuse to take up, including assisting those who had been condemned to death. In one particular case, she accompanied a young man all the way to the chopping block and actually ended up catching his severed head and being covered with his blood, something perfectly in line with her character as she had often expressed the desire to drown in the blood of Christ. She would meet with people of all social levels and started to be followed around by large crowds who clamoured to touch her body and be healed or receive good fortune from her. All of this took an increasing toll on her body as her followers, Raymond of Capua first among them, tried to get her to eat more. But although she claimed that she wanted to, she could not. He was, however, able to use his position as her confessor to command obedience and at least get her to stop wearing a cilice. On the 11th of April, 1375, she had a vision in which she received the stigmata, the signs of the wounds of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, she claimed that she could feel the wounds, but no one else at the time was able to see them, although some claim they were visible on her body after her death. That was when the Pope asked her to make a tour of Tuscany to convince the cities to stay out of the coming war of the eight saints between Florence and the papacy. 
After the war inevitably broke out, it was the Florentines later who sent her to Avignon to try and broker a peace with the Pope. Catherine was particularly aggressive with the Florentines when they also sent a separate delegation that did not consult her before meeting with the Pope. It was in 1378, when she was still in Florence working on the peace process, that Pope Gregory XI died. His successor was chosen particularly quickly due to the fact that the Roman citizens had already started to rebel, demanding an Italian pope who would keep the papacy in Rome. Before they could manage to do more than raid the papal cellars and steal the wine, the cardinals quickly dressed up a secretary and shoved him out on the balcony to calm the rebellion. The real new pope, Urban VI, arrived a few days later. The choice of the name of the new pope, Urban, tied to the Urbs, the city of Rome, left no doubt about his intentions. Meanwhile, Caterina was caught up in the Chompi revolt we spoke about, and the Florentine authorities whisked her away to a convent for protection. However, an armed man was nevertheless able to make his way to her, and when he threatened her with his sword and asked her if she was Catherine of Siena, she replied, Yes, I am. Go ahead and kill me. The man lowered his weapon and told her to leave and never to return. Catherine later regretted not having had the opportunity to be a martyr for Christ on that occasion, feeling that she had sinned in some way and that she did not deserve it. An even greater trial was about to be put before Catherine. Not long after electing Urban VI, the cardinals started to grow weary of him and met again to elect an anti-pope, Robert of Geneva, the Butcher of Cesena, who was elected as Clement VII. Catherine headed to Rome and went into major PR overdrive to support whom she saw as the real pope, the Italian pope, Urban VI. She wrote to the cardinals, accusing them of having first revealed the truth to the world and then having lived a lie for themselves. She wrote to Italian and European leaders, asking them to support the real Pope and viciously shaming those who supported the false one. She was particularly disappointed by the position of Queen Joanna of Naples, whom she criticised with a total lack of feminism as being too unmanly, like a woman who changed her mind and floated like a leaf in the wind. She took the lack of support by Joanna for Urban personally as a sign from God that she, Catherine, was not doing enough. Catherine had spent all her life battling, first her family to have her own way, then the society around her, then the civil leaders to bring peace to the land and the spiritual leaders to eliminate corruption from the church, the popes, the anti-popes and European leaders. At the same time, for all of her life, she had waged the greatest battle against her physical being, her body. In 1380, Catherine's iron will finally won that battle. She took to her bed in late January of that year. Over the months of her decline, people started to gather outside of the place where she was staying in Rome. 
and the crowd swelled to a point that a Roman senator took it upon himself to organise the traffic in the area. As winter moved to spring, her agony grew and she could no longer even drink. In her very last days, she said she had been battling with demons, as God, like he had done with Job, had allowed them to attack her, and those around her claimed to have seen the signs of the struggle appear on her body, which they described at this point as skin glued on bones with nothing else in between. She finally died on the 26th of April, 1380. Her last words were those of Jesus himself. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. She was 33 years old. Her death was kept secret from the gathering crowds as long as possible. As it was, when she was finally taken away, the crowds managed to strip her of her clothes and even steal one of her fingers. The distribution of her body later continued when her long-term confessor and disciple, Raymond of Capua, received permission from the Pope to detach her body from the head and take the head to Siena, a gruesome sight you can view to this day. So that is the life of Caterina Benincasa of Siena. But now the saint part needed to be put in place and to do that you needed miracles. There was no shortage of people claiming those. It was claimed that her simple touch had cured a four-year-old child with blocked nerves who was forced to go around with his head blocked to one side. A paralysed man who managed to touch her leg as her body was taken on procession managed to walk again. A leper woman who put her face to the body was immediately cured. A little girl suffering from tuberculosis was cured when her father gave her one of Catherine's rosaries to touch. A man on the point of death prayed to her and was cured. A woman whose child fell out of a window invoked the name of the saint and the child floated down without getting hurt, although he might have been a baby mutant like the X-Men or Superman or something. All of these and many more left no doubt to the church that Catherine was a saint. It was not a fast-track thing, though. Indeed, she was only canonised in 1461 by Pope Pius II. Now, as we have mentioned, St. Catherine of Siena, along with St. Francis of Assisi, is one of the two patron saints of Italy, as well as one of the patron saints of Europe, and, of course, of nurses. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks in particular also to my Patreon supporters, starting from the first half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and that is Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Bill S, Brian J, Carrie W, C Lane, Cindy M, Dean V, Dominique T, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, Graeme, Greg, Ignacio, Il Valentino, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeffrey W, Jesse and Sherry, Joseph S, Juan Diego, Julia G, Old John in Milwaukee, 
and Orlando D. You will have noticed some newcomers there if you're very attentive, or if you are one of those newcomers, and that is Orlando D, Jesse and Sherry, and Cindy M. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Of course, we must never forget the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, Oak, and Sen. If you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or you can go to our social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. Now, I also haven't thanked people in a while for the lovely reviews coming in, so thank you to all of those who have written a review recently. I would like to address one in particular which could really give me a hand, and that is Corso65, who mentions that the podcast improves after the beginning. Now, I have re-recorded the first four episodes, and I would like to know, more or less, when you think the podcast starts to improve, so that I can decide if I need to re-record any of the earlier episodes. Thank you very much to anyone who lets me know about that. Once again, thanks very much to you for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Ah, oh, Catherine, how good to see you. Would you like a little bit of water? I don't know. You don't have a nice mug of mucus by any chance, do you? Ah, oh, that's disgusting, Catherine, and that is exactly the reason why I wanted to talk to you today. What do you mean? It's like that time I drank the pus. Sweetest of the sweetest. Drinks. That's it! You're just so gross sometimes, like with all that pus-drinking business. Ah, yes, the sweet, sweet. Enough! You need to take it down a notch, dear. What do you mean? Well, the other day, when we were having a nice meal, and you started talking about the visions of the saints puking and filling up the room. Ah, yes, the pool of holy vomit. I wish to be cradled in those holy-scented waves of sacred gastric fluids. Yes, well... That's the sort of thing that makes people sick. You need to censor the disgusting details a bit. And and maybe not talk about them at mealtimes. Well, I suppose... And the violence. Some of your visions are quite extreme. Don't be such a baby. Ah, yes. Speaking of which, some of the children are terrified. They've been having nightmares. Like that last one about Jesus whipping the devils. What's wrong with that? You said he used the spinal cord he ripped out of your body to beat them with. Ah, what a glorious vision. My back still feels all tingly. Then then there was the one about the bowling. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. You said Jesus ripped off your head and bowled down a bunch of demons with it. Yeah, I still feel dizzy with delight when I think of it. Oh, I give up. No, no, wait. I haven't told you about my latest vision. Oh, what now? 
Was some saint skipping rope with your entrails or something? No, I saw something I had never seen before. I got a glimpse of the supreme being. Ah, oh, well, go on. What did he look like? Well, it was odd. I mean... Go on! Well, it was a huge, rounded form, like sort of a vegetable, maybe a... T- uh, stop right there. Sentira Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.